Reading from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive all that you would say to us, that, Father, we may hear from your Spirit, and that your Spirit working in us would give us all that we need to understand and to put into practice the words that you speak in your holy word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So in Deuteronomy chapter 11, when Moses was declaring the law of God to a new generation of Israel, he spoke to them and he said, if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. There's one thing I want to touch on this morning, and that's this idea that we sometimes have that under the Old Covenant, in these Old Testament times, God was attempting to save his people by the law, and so if they did the works that he was calling them to do, they would be okay. The New Testament tells us very clearly in a couple of different places, that that was not the case, that if a law could have been given that would have imparted life, then Christ died in vain. Christ died for nothing if righteousness was attainable by even one person under the law of God. So we have to take this passage that I just read within the context of true faith that I was talking about in the past couple of weeks and understand what's happening here is that God is calling his people to demonstrate their trust in his word and in his promise by being obedient to his commands. It's not that the law could save them. No one has ever been saved by the works of the law. Not one person. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. It's that God is saying, if you believe, if you trust me, then you will be careful to do all this. And if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. This was the promise of God to the people of Israel. 
Moses affirmed it before he died. Joshua affirmed it again when he became the commander-in-chief of the people of Israel. But now in the book of Judges, roughly 30 years have gone by. And at the beginning of chapter 2, we read this. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Gilgal was that place where God had renewed the covenant with Israel and rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Gilgal sounds like the word for roll. And the angel of the Lord went up from there to a place that was about to be named Bochim, which means weeping or weepers. And the angel of the Lord said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the lands. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So the angel of the Lord comes to them at this place and calls them to account for the nations they have not driven out and for the fact, as we'll see in a moment, that they had really not just failed in some sort of passive sense, they had actively turned away from the Lord their God and they begin to weep and to cry out to him here and that's why the place gets the name Bokim. They had been commanded to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan, but they had not done so. In Judges chapter 1, which we're not going to read this morning, but a good bit of that chapter reads like a litany of all the peoples that the various tribes of Israel did not drive out of the land that God had given them by covenant. And at first it seems like maybe they tried really, really hard, but they just couldn't quite pull off the conquest of the land. The truth is something a little different. Judges chapter 2 tells us that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance. And all that generation, all of the generation that survived the days of Joshua, also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, if that's the case... There's an indictment to be made even against the generation that did know Joshua and had been there when they crossed the Red Sea. Because if they had done what God had commanded them to do, their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren would have known. But they didn't. They didn't know the Lord in that sense of they didn't have faith in him, they didn't trust him, and they were unaware of the work that he had done. And then in the very next verse... Judges 2, verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now later in the book, this same phenomenon is going to be described by everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we need to keep that in mind going through the book of the Judges. Those are one and the same thing. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes, then everyone is doing what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. Because what's right in our eyes, especially what's right in the eyes of people who do not know him and do not remember his work, is inevitably going to be evil. But any way you look at it, whether you describe it as them doing what was right in their own eyes or doing what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, um, any way you look at it, we're told they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
So God said, I brought you out. I delivered you. I saved you from the oppression and slavery that you were enduring in Egypt. And then I brought you through the wilderness where for 40 years I fed you with bread from heaven. And the soles of your shoes did not wear out even though you were walking through the violent desert for 40 years. And then I brought you through the river Jordan and into this good land, this promised land. And now you have abandoned me. You have abandoned the God of your fathers. And more still, we're told in Judges 2.12, they went after other gods. From the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth. I don't need to say it again because I've said it so many times before. The religion of Canaan was not just idolatry. There weren't just some nice bronze idols to a chubby little deity that you lit some incense. These religions involved human sexuality and a perverse kind of sexuality and human sacrifice. These religions involved things that if we could put them on the screen, you'd get up and you'd walk out of the room. And we need to understand that, and we need to understand that it was Israel turning to those idols and those religions that caused all of this, because Judges 2.14 says, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. God was angry with them for turning away from him and for doing what was right in their own eyes and what was evil in his sight. So he gave them over. God was angry with them, so he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And this is the beginning of a cycle. It's the beginning of a cycle that's going to repeat itself over and over and over again throughout the roughly 400 years of Israel's history that are covered in the book of Judges. As it says in Judges 2, verses 16 to 19, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them, and they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways." If you want some verification of that, just read the last couple chapters of the book of Judges and see what was right in their own eyes actually ended up looking like. We're not going to deal with them here in church, but they're horrific. And you should read them if you want to know what happens when people turn away from the living God and God gives them over to do what they want, to do what is right in their own eyes. So Israel was supposed to drive out the nations of Canaan and to possess the inheritance promised to Abraham and the fathers, but they didn't. Instead, abandoning the Lord and breaking his covenant, 
what they did was described by James in the text that Glenn read a few minutes ago as becoming friends with the world. Understand this isn't a matter of them saying, okay, we're not too happy with the worship of the Lord. By the way, throughout the entire 400 years, the tabernacle was at Shiloh, and the Ark of God's Covenant was there within the Holy of Holies, and the priests of the Lord were continuing during this time to offer some kind of worship to Yahweh, the God of Israel, That didn't seem to bother the people of the land. They were used to a multiplicity of gods. Every little tribe had their own deity. So the people were actively turning away from the true worship of the true God to engage in worship with the Baals and the Asherah and Molech and Chemosh and all the others. And it wasn't like on the day that they they said, let's not worship God anymore, let's worship the Baals, or probably more along the lines of, maybe it would be a good idea to not only try to placate God who brought us into this land, but also the gods of the land, because who knows, maybe making an offering to Baal is going to actually give us a better harvest in the, the spring in their land. It was probably more like that, this syncretism, this idea of the Lord God, and. And then it becomes, well, just Baal, because worshiping Baal was probably more fun. And they're making friends with the people around. They're intermarrying their sons and their daughters. They're breaking the commands and the covenant of God. They're doing what seems right to them and what seems to make for peace, and eventually God just says, enough. You want to serve Baal, Fine, go serve Baal. See how that works out for you. They became friends with the world, and then God gave them over to the world and to the worship that they had befriended. And it's interesting to note that in Judges chapter 10, when the people cried out to God, he did eventually deliver them through a very unlikely judge in that case. But before he delivered them, he said, You have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. But it's this next line. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Go and cry out to those blocks of wood and stone and those idols that have been set up, those trees that have been worshipped on the high places. Cry out to them. Go ahead. Let them save you in the time of your distress. So it seems that because this cycle actually happened multiple times, every new judge that we see in the book of Judges is responding to God leading them to deliver the people of Israel, but the people of Israel are in trouble because the people of Israel have forsaken the Lord their God. And apparently this is a hard lesson to learn. As I mentioned, James was writing about this in the text that we read a few minutes ago. And remember, James is writing to believers. He's not writing to unbelievers and saying, you guys better be careful. He's writing to believers and saying, you guys better be careful. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That's what Israel was doing in Judges 
when 10, when they came to God and they said, oh, please deliver us. And God says, I don't think I'm going to do that right now. Because you want me to deliver you so that you can turn around and worship those false gods. Why would I do that? And how often we come to God and we ask him for something and we pray. We say, God, please do this. And we ask and do not receive because we're not asking that God would be glorified in us and through us. We're asking because there's something we want, something that we want to do, some way that this answer that God would give would play into the lives that we have imagined for ourselves. And James says, you're not going to receive when you ask that way because you're asking with wrong motives that you may spend it on your passions. And then the next verse in James When Glenn read it, he read, you adulterous people, which is what the English Standard Version says. Literally in Greek, it says, you adulteresses. Because James is picking up on the language of the Old Testament, where when the people turned away from true worship of the living God, they were prostituting themselves by going after foreign gods. James is saying, we do the same thing in the church today. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I wish we could just sort of put that on little cards and take it home. That would probably be enough of a sermon for today. Do you not know That friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It was true then. It was true in the days of Joshua. And it's true now. S.G. de Graff, the author of the series of books, Promise and Deliverance, which they're kind of hard to find and they're expensive, but if you don't have them, they're worth it. He wrote, Israel had been called to wipe out the Canaanites, The Lord had given the land of Canaan to Israel so that he alone would be served there. God didn't bring Israel into the land so that they could coexist. You know the bumper sticker, right? So that they could coexist with the nations of Canaan and with the false gods that were worshipped there. He brought Israel into the land so that he alone would be served there. And so far, most people probably would agree, if we believe the Bible at all. But the graph went on. Thus, Canaan stands for the entire earth. The Lord alone is to be served on the earth. In other words, just as Israel was tasked with making certain that the Lord alone would be served in the land that he gave as an inheritance to Abraham, we, the church of Jesus Christ, have been tasked to work for the day when the Lord alone will be served in all the earth. When the names of the false gods and the false religions that have raised themselves up against the worship of the God who made all things will no longer be mentioned or even remembered. But God alone will be served. 
By the way, this is the inevitable end of history. We hear people on the news and in academia talking about being on the right side of history. If you want to be on the right side of history, you need to be on the side of the living God who made all things and who has saved us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. There is no other right side of history. The kingdom of God has never been a democracy. And there will be no principled pluralism at the end of history. It doesn't work that way. Just the unchallenged and unending realization that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And when we talk about spiritual warfare in the church, this is what we're talking about. We are talking about engaging in the cause of Christ to make disciples of the nations. This is the goal of our warfare. Now, of course, we do not fight with physical weapons, as the Israelites did. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We don't conquer the world with swords loud clashing and roll of stirring drum, as one of the hymn writers said. We don't have swords and shields or guns and bombs. That's not how we do it. That's not the way that God works in this world. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but still they have divine power. They have the power of God to destroy strongholds. And we're meant to use them to do just that. We are meant to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to obey or for obedience to Christ. And this begins in ourselves. We need to take our thoughts captive for obedience to Christ, but then we take the word of God, which is his power for salvation to those who believe, and we proclaim it in the public square so that we can take those thoughts captive for obedience to Christ too. This is how we, like Israel, are called to, in the words of S.D. de Graaf, engage in unceasing spiritual warfare against anything and everything that opposes the honor of his name. How do we engage in spiritual warfare? It's not some mystical, magical thing that we do behind closed doors. We engage in spiritual warfare when we make disciples. We engage in spiritual warfare when we teach the nations to obey. If you read carefully the Great Commission, it's not saying make disciples from out, from out of all the nations. That's, that's not what it says in the words that are recorded for us by Jesus. It says, teach the nations not just the people in the nations, teach the nations themselves, disciple the nations. And we do that by proclaiming the lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life. We proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ over every area and especially over those areas where the lordship of Jesus Christ is most challenged in our time. 
So we're talking about those awkward conversations that we have with the world and sometimes even with other people who call themselves Christians. Conversations about sexuality, gender issues, marriage, abortion, euthanasia, education, pluralism, and politics. Jesus Christ is Lord over all of those things. And whenever anyone, even someone who doesn't acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, engages in sinful behavior, they are subject to the judgment of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may remember from our study in Revelation a couple of years ago that really interesting phrase, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. And so we proclaim without fear or shame or compromise that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. Every square inch, as a famous Dutch theologian said, he, he put it this way in a, dif- in a different quote. Abraham Kuyper said, As soon as principles gain ground that are contrary to your deepest convictions then resistance is your duty and acquiescence a sin. Then at the price of the finest peace, you must attack those principles, stigmatizing them before the eyes of friend and foe alike with all the ardor of your faith. The same man who said there is not one square inch of all of creation over which Jesus Christ does not declare, this is mine said that. When our dearest principles are challenged, our deepest convictions about God and his word, then resistance is our duty and acquiescence a sin. In less complicated terms, DeGraff wrote, for us today, it would be just as sinful and disobedient to enter into a spiritual agreement to live in peace with the forces of unbelief as it was for Israel to make an alliance with the Canaanites. By the way, entering into a spiritual agreement to live in peace with the forces of unbelief, that's, very, that, that, that's the very definition of principled pluralism. And we can't do it. Now we struggle with this. We are told, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, James wrote. But often, like the Israelites, we would rather enjoy the finest peace with the world. We would rather be friends with the world, even if that does mean enmity with God. And besides, if we try really hard, we can probably persuade ourselves that friendship with the world is really the best way to do evangelism. It's not true. We will never win the world for Christ by becoming the enemies of God. That's why James went on in verses 7 to 10, the part that Glenn didn't read because I didn't ask him to. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Because of all of those things that Glenn read for us, that we saw in the first six verses of James chapter 4, submit yourselves therefore to God. 
Don't become his enemy by becoming a friend of the world. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's one of the most amazing promises in all of scripture. If we just resist, he will flee. How do we resist? By submitting to God. If I can speak frankly, we don't resist by, like the young man who goes to see a movie of questionable morals and there's lots of skin up there on the screen and he says, oh Lord, please help me to resist temptation. I don't want to lust. That's not how we resist. We resist by submitting to God. We resist by not going to see that film or turning it on on the TV set in our living room. Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery already in her heart. That applies the other way around too. And so we submit to him by not tempting the devil to tempt us. We submit to him by being obedient to his commands and to his word. Resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God. We don't draw near to God by sinning. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. When Israel humbled themselves before the Lord, when they repented, when they went to God and they said, God, this, this oppression that we're experiencing, the Midianites or the Philistines or whatever other nation it was, when they went and they say, God, we should not have worshipped Dagon or Baal. We should not have bowed at the Asherah poles. We should not have offered up our children into the fire to Molech. We should not have done these things. And when they went to him and they submitted themselves and they humbled themselves before the Lord, the Lord raised up a judge. He exalted his people. He brought them deliverance and freedom. And as with them, the way for the church to bring the world to the worship of God is not through some unholy alliance with the world. It is for us, the church of Jesus Christ, to humbly submit ourselves to God. And by submitting to God, resist the devil. And the way for us to teach obedience to all that Christ commanded us is to obey all that Christ commanded us. We don't preach obedience the observance of all that Christ commanded by doing exactly the opposite. And this is our calling. This is the message that we are to proclaim to the world because, as someone somewhere said, our world belongs to God. It always has. That's what that means. Psalm 24, 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And I don't think it's possible for truth to be even more true. That was the truth when the psalmist wrote those words. And it's the truth now, too. Because between his resurrection and ascension, when Jesus gathered his disciples in Galilee, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given 
to me. The government of Canada has no authority that transcends the authority of Jesus Christ. The government of the World Health Organization or the Davos crowd has no authority that transcends the authority of Jesus Christ. All authority. And not just in heaven, but on earth as well. Jesus Christ is not just king of the church. And he's not just king over spiritual things in heaven. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And as always, that calls for Handel's little doxology forever and ever Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ is just king, period. He's king over the world. He's king over the governments and nations of this world. Psalm 2 tells us he has been given those nations as his inheritance. And he rules over them with a rod of iron. He is king over the church and he is king over our lives. If we declare him as Lord but fail to submit to him, we're putting ourselves into that same cycle that we see repeating itself over and over and over again in the book of Judges. But if we acknowledge that he is sovereign, that Jesus Christ is sovereign over kings and lords and prime ministers and premiers and parliaments and presidents and congresses and constitutions too. He is Lord over all of those things. Then we understand the Great Commission because that's the reason for it. And this is the reason for the church. Let me quote S.D. de Graaf again, the same one we've been looking at. Israel had been called, called to wipe out the Canaanites. The Lord had given the land of Canaan to Israel so that he alone would be served there. Thus, Canaan stands for the entire earth, for the Lord alone is to be served on earth. That's what we pray for when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for the Lord alone to be served on earth. To achieve this goal, the Lord calls his people to engage in unceasing spiritual warfare against anything and everything that opposes the honor of his name. To achieve this goal, we have been given the whole armor of God, including the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is his power. For salvation to everyone who believes. It is that weapon that we've been given according to Paul in Corinthians that is powerful. It has divine power to destroy strongholds and to take every thought captive. Let's take up the armor of God and resist the devil knowing that as we do, he will flee from us. May we be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might as we go out this week to do battle to resist against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And we resist by proclaiming the word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So unashamed and unafraid, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and proclaim it. 
for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Even so, may God speak in us and through us until his church is built and the world is filled with his glory. 